Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 140 for the week ending February 1, 2019, the Godfather Retires Edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent, integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. We have a wide-ranging series of stories this week, including why lying to your bank is a bad idea and the trouble Huawei is in. Uh, at the SEC, had a very busy week where four companies had internal controls failures. If you sue around defamation for being put on an FCPA no-no list, don't expect relief from the courts. Talk about corporate, corporate culture, how to brief a board on tech, ask if conflicts of interest help fuel the opioid crisis, look at Odebrecht debarment by the World Bank, and why you should read anti-corruption perception indices with a grain of salt. We end with a lengthy tribute to the godfather of FCPA blogging and compliance commentators, Dick Casson, who retired this week, stepping down from the day-to-day running of the FCPA blog. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 140, for the week ending February 1, 2019, the Godfather Retires Edition. As always, I'm joined by well-known Homer, Jay Rosen. Jay, it's a Homer weekend, isn't it? It totally is, and and you're part of the home team, too, having uh, gone to U of M. So, uh, as uh, hopefully uh, everyone knows, but if not, we're going to break some news here that the uh, Super Bowl is Sunday. Um, and the question I always, I always ask is, will the ads be better than the game? I can say for the last few Super Bowls, the game has been at least equal of the ads. Um, we've got a big retirement to announce and uh, some new roles, but a lot of uh, compliance and ethics stories, Jay. So you want to just jump right into it? Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about our favorite China-based uh, telecom company, and uh, we've got three different sources. So, what is happening when you lobby your bank? So, uh, you know, your mother said, "Don't lie; it's not good to lie." And hopefully, you heard that lesson and perhaps even internalized that lesson because uh, since uh, corporations and banks are now people, they need to learn not to lie. And corporations need to learn not to lie to their banks, because if you lie to your bank, it can be a felony. And that's what Huawei found out this week when it was indicted uh, by the U.S. uh, Department of Justice for lying to its banks about its relationships with uh, Iran and the sales that uh, it was generating in Iran and the monies that they were trying to launder through uh, banks by lying to them. um, This was not the only... um, uh, criminal indictment brought against Huawei. They were also sued for 
uh, theft of trade secrets and um, by another uh, U.S. company. And then uh, we even had an opinion piece where Holen Jenkins speculates in the Wall Street Journal of will Huawei even be around. And certainly with the U.S. government going after them in this manner, uh, one would think that they're going to have a very difficult time doing business. They, they have not been able to do business in the United States for some period of time. But as uh, Sam Rubenfeld pointed out in an article in the WSJ Risk and Compliance Journal, uh, the U.S. has put pressure on its allies to also deny business to Huawei. And these allies include, although you have to wonder under the Trump administration why anybody would be the ally of the United States, it includes EU countries and includes uh, such as UK, France, Germany, Poland, Australia. Uh, So a pretty wide-ranging attempt to uh, shun uh, Huawei out of the market. So I got a quick question for you. What is the fascination with uh, Tappy the robot? Uh, well, you know, Tappy is is a big hit, and uh, it's uh, she's got uh, or he's got or perhaps he's perhaps I should say uh, as in Pat from Saturday Night Live, gender neutral, <laughs> um, and as a direct line, genealogical uh, uh, line from Pat moving forward. Uh, Tappy has its own, um, you know, YouTube uh, following and huge in social media. So uh, it's much like uh, Fiona the Hippo. If uh, you don't know, you don't get it. And uh, for those who may not get how much uh, love Fiona brings into the world, you simply cannot appreciate what it's like watching a hippo sleep for 30 minutes. That is one of the most exciting things there is uh, for a true hippo lover. So... Well, it's it's going to be hard for it's going to be hard for me to follow that story, Tom. But it wouldn't be a week in the FCPA without talking about the coolest guy in compliance, and that would be Matt Kelly from Radical Compliance. <clears throat> and Matt has a story uh, this week about the Security and Exchange Commission hits firms on internal controls, and uh, basically the uh, gist of this is that simply disclose. Closing material weaknesses is not sufficient to fulfill a company's compliance duties. Executives actually have to fix the problem. And um, the SEC dinged four companies, Grupo Simec, a steel company in Mexico. Simec disclosed material weaknesses in its annual filings for 10 consecutive years, Lifeway Foods for nine, Digital Turbine for seven, and Cytodin, which was uh, working on HIV treatments for nine years in a row. So uh, this is the second SEC action we've seen recently where the agency faulted a company for inadequate resources that led to sloppy financial reporting. In December, the SEC fined Hertz $16 million, and uh, this led to financial restatements from 2015. So there's smaller firms, uh, you know, might argue that they can't implement flawless internal control systems from day one of operation, and that's a fair point. But the SEC complaint says that management ignored internal control weaknesses year after year. So if there's a single group default here, uh, we'd fault these four companies' audit committees, and it appears that the audit committee's job to assist insists that accounting and audit functions – 
have the necessary resources they need to maintain internal control over financial reporting. So that's a good article, and we link to that in our show notes. Uh, next up, Tom, uh, why don't you tell us what happens when you get dinged by your employer in an FCPA situation? You know, before we get there, Jay, I'd just like to say a couple of words about uh, the points you made on the SEC enforcement actions. We often see enforcement actions in the regulated industries, such as these four, our precursors are really the start of a new uh, way that the uh, the SEC thinks about enforcement can lead to enforcement initiatives in other areas, such as under the FCPA. So it would not surprise me that if the SEC now says that not only must you report uh, material adverse weakness uh, based upon your uh, lack of internal controls, uh, that uh, you must now remediate that material weakness, you could have the same sort of analogy or same sort of set of facts in the FCPA world. Because we have cases where, where with no evidence of a bribe being paid, companies are being fined by the SEC for failure of internal controls around bribery and corruption. Well, now, if you uh, not only have uh, a failure, but you don't remediate, I think uh, we could see a separate uh, or a push towards that. So I just I wanted to note that, Jay, because we often see cases from the regulated industries really leading the SEC's thinking. Um and I have to throw in the uh, the article by Doug Cornelius uh, in Compliance Building this week. It was a fairly routine real estate scam, but one of the uh, projects uh, that uh, the scammers got people to go into, or funds rather, was called the Texas Cash Cow. And here's a, a free hint from this week in FCPA. If an investment fund is called Texas Cash Cow, don't turn away. Turn away and run. Um, and that leads to um, uh, the one you raised about the FCPA. Uh, here we had a, uh, a case where a uh, individual who was a third party to a company was named to BioZimmermet, bio, uh, bio and he was named in an FCPA probe, and his contractual relationship was terminated uh, based upon certain findings that were determined in the internal investigation. Uh, the company had sustained an FCPA violation, not once but twice, so it was recidivist. It had not one but two monitors uh, consecutively, and uh, the monitor had suggested that uh, by, uh, Zimmer Biomet uh, terminate relations with those uh, whose names had come up in the internal investigation. So uh, this third party uh, sued uh, under defamation law, saying that the, his business had been defamed, because they had uh, terminated his relationship and uh, ended or named him uh, in the internal investigation. And the court threw out the uh, claim on summary judgment, Jay, which is the strongest way a judge can rule or court can rule, saying that there was no violation of the law, that Byers Zimmerman was well within its uh, legal rights to terminate. And given the fact that they were under a deferred prosecution agreement, not once but twice, and not under a monitorship, not once but twice, it was a prudent action. So um, if you are uh, have your business uh, ended because you get caught up in an FCPA, a brouhaha, uh, you're not going to get relief, at least from a defamation, defamation claim. Uh, Jay, I know that uh, one of the things Affiliated Monitors uh, does and, frankly, talks about quite a bit is corporate culture. 
And that's something that uh, you guys really try to emphasize for businesses. And so I was really struck um, by uh, a report and white paper issued by State Street Global Advisors recently around how boards of directors can think through and actually uh, perform the oversight role that they are required to under law around corporate culture. And I had the chance to sit down with uh, Rocky Kumar, who is with uh, SSGA, and uh, that interview led to a two-part blog series. And um, in uh, part one, and we've I've linked to or we've linked to both in the show notes. But in part one, we identified the problem. We identified uh, where um, both the regulatory and uh, uh, business uh, requirements uh, are are coming to the fore. But the thing that really uh, made this unique, and I think most helpful for the compliance practitioner Jay, is the white paper which detailed SSGA's proposed framework. And it's not a check the box. I mean, Rocky emphasized throughout the interview, it's not one size fits all. You have to assess not only your risk, but your culture, but the framework, literally a series of questions that uh, compliance practitioners, boards of directors, and senior management can ask to, to start to think about culture. And I found it to be extraordinarily useful. I blogged about it twice, and I've got an upcoming uh, podcast on it. So uh, take a look at uh, this and take a look at the uh, Straight Street Global White Paper. It's, a, I think, a really useful tool for the compliance practitioner. Next up, we have uh, an article from, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, from uh, Jim Deloach at Protivity. And this comes to us courtesy of the Corporate Compliance Insight blog. Uh, it's always chock full of good stuff. And um, basically, in this conversation, uh, Deloach discusses how to have the conversation in context of strategy, risk mitigation, and impact with your board. So uh, often board members give feedback that they are not satisfied, that they understand the full picture regarding technology risk within their organization. And Taloch says that you should try to speak to your board and cover three main areas. The first would be looking at technology within the context of business, and the CIO should address how the business model leverages technology to deliver the products and services the company offers in the marketplace. Um, representative questions would be, do we understand developments and potentially disruptive new technologies? Are emerging technologies being employed effectively for strategic our business objectives? Next up, within the context of executing the strategy, here the CIO articulates how strategic initiatives are driven by critical technology and how the organization is facilitating the dissemination of controls. Uh, representative questions would be what technologies are critical to implementing our strategic initiatives and accomplishing our business objectives. Finally, the third topic is within the context of risk mitigation and the CIO should use a broader business view to identify specific risks that may be a result of technology or mitigated partly through the application of technology. Uh, underlying the two timeless principles, business objectives are also technology objectives, and it goes to follow that technology risks are also business risks. And uh, citing those two uh, rules, 
uh, when you continue to speak with the board, you should let them uh, know how technology demonstrating of the business, help them focus on the board's needs, address business impacts and metrics, not just technology impact and metrics, target your audience, keep it pithy. And this is a key point here. Directors don't want the whole nine yard. Focus on what they need to know and leave it at that. And uh, we certainly have um, uh, a key executive in Washington who likes his briefings very slim. And finally, uh, be prepared for contingencies. So um, I think it's a great article. Uh, Jim lays it, lays it out, uh, you know, very conversationally, and it will give you a jumping off point for you to start having these conversations and educating your board. So, Jay, next we have an article in the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and I won't even begin to pretend to butcher the name of this person. I will just identify her as she. Um, but uh, the author uh, is really looking for some behavioral insights around anti-corruption, and uh, she um, really specifies or starts with a recent uh, article by the OECD, which was entitled Behavioral Insights for Public Integrity, Harnessing the Human Factor to Counter Corruption. And, uh, but what she finds in the article is really some well-worn uh, phrases and uh, things that I think most people either know intuitively or, or really were not that helpful. And that uh, she says it's uh, still an open question about the, whether the behavioral revolution will bring significant new ideas to the anti-corruption field. Um, it's, it really points up the need for some rigor in this area and the, the um, the comments after the piece were almost as interesting, but I would commend everyone uh, to this. And this is something that we're going to have to watch uh, going forward because as is recognized more and more fraud, these behavioral aspects are going to become uh, more important going forward. How about uh, any conflicts of interest around the opioid crisis? There you go. I can, I can talk about that. Uh, this comes to us from uh, Sarah Toy. It was published on January 20th on Market Watch, and um, uh, surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, opioid-related overdose deaths are higher in areas of the company, of the country rather, where there's an increased marketing of opioid products to, physici to physicians. So that um, you know, it makes sense if a company is um, concentrating on trying to sell more products that that will happen. But what we found out in this interesting study is it's not so much the amount of money that are given to physicians to prescribe, but it more has to do with the number of interactions. And as uh, the marketing people got more comfortable with the doctors, the doctors started to build trust. So this is uh, something that uh, you know really smacks of what we talk about when we're looking at improper gift giving uh, within the FCPA context, you know, pump up their numbers. Uh, big pharma companies uh, resorted to this. And according to the reporting by STAT, uh, Purdue's marketing campaign focused on high volume doctors whose salespeople repeatedly visited. And in 2012, sales managers threatened to fire all the representatives in the Boston area because of what they th thought was uh, lackluster numbers. So once they started this uh, program uh, of making multiple payments, the numbers picked up. 
And the study suggests that states should be thinking not just about capping the value, but also capping the number of times physicians interact with the pharmaceutical industry. So that's a, that's a, that's a big one that we got there. Uh, next up, we well, are before gonna, you before you oh. uh, get to that next one. I, I do have to. Uh, I thought you had read the story about the uh, testimony about an ex exotic dancer who became a, a VP of sales at Insys Therapeutics and who did give a lap dance to a doctor at a club uh, to make sales. So uh, we have it uh, on the record that this is an official approved sales technique, at least at Insys Therapeutics. Uh, okay. And also just uh, along with that other article, we um, we have a link to Jeff Kaplan's blog, uh, the conflict of interest blog, and he really summarizes the the findings that we just spoke about. Uh, next up, should year-end corruption perceptions ratings be read with a grain of salt? Uh, this comes to us from uh, Matthew Stevenson over at the Global Anti-Corruption blog. And uh, as we've seen uh, on LinkedIn and in the press, everybody's looking at the new uh, corruption perspective perceptions index the cpi for 2018 and uh mr stevenson recommends that you should not compare any given country's cpi score to last year's score to make claims about what's happening in the fight against corruption and he makes a couple points first there is so much statistical noise that it's really hard to tell whether or not things are improving in a company and second, and perhaps more important, anti-corruption efforts take time to be effective, and it would be a mistake to write them off as a failure just because they don't produce immediate results. So um, I also wanted to take something that isn't in the um, show notes that I uh, highlighted on LinkedIn that uh, one of our colleagues from Brazil wrote a column last night. Her name is uh, Patricia and she talked about the worsening of Brazil in the 2018 CPI. But her point was now that this company has been changed after Operation Car Wash and everything that's gone on in Brazil, uh, corruption is out in the open now. It's no longer spoke, spoken about in the back rooms, but the whole uh, country uh, is aware of the problems and they are making concerted efforts to uh, move forward. So I think uh, Matthew Stevenson's opinions are uh, very valid here. And then the last article that kind of dovetails on that uh, comes to us from um, Dick Casson over at his FCPA blog. And it says the World Bank debars Odebrecht construction units for fraud and collusion. And Odebrecht was one of the um, the big casualties in bribery uh, that we saw in Brazil over the past couple of years. Uh, also debarred were Odebrecht construction subsidiaries in Colombia, Chile, Panama, Peru, Barbados, Angola, the U.S., Luxembourg, Austria, and the Cayman Islands. And um, in late 2016, Odebrecht and its petrochemical M pleaded guilty to the U.S. of paying bribes around the world. The companies agreed to pay $3.5 billion for a global settlement, 
while authorities in the U.S. Uh, with authorities in the U.S., Brazil, and Switzerland, the DOJ usually uh, later reduced the U.S. share of their global pe- global penalty from 260 million to 93 million, uh, based on Odebrecht's ability to pay criminal penalties after it lost some big uh, contracts. So. Uh, Tuesdays, Odebrecht departments qualify for cross-debarment by the Asian Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the African Development Bank. So uh, that's our news items. Tom, you've been uh, thinking about Shakespeare again, and uh, what did you and the Bard speak about this week? So Jay, I did a five-part series on Shakespeare's problem plays, and... um, I had a lot of fun uh, doing this. We looked at the Winter's Tale. We looked at Measure for Measure. We looked at uh, Timon of Athens. We looked at um, these in connection with um, using resources within a uh, compliance program. It was a lot of fun, and I hope that uh, people will take a listen. I certainly enjoyed uh, putting them together. As always, the podcasts are available on multiple sites, and those, of course, are listed in the show notes. So, Jay, uh, I wanted to leave a little bit of time to talk about Dick Casson, and I know he's uh, been very meaningful to both of us in our compliance careers. Uh, Dick is the uh, was the, the founder, publisher, and editor at the FCPA compliance, uh, excuse me, at the FCPA blog. He retired uh, yesterday, and is now a roving uh, editor at large for the FCPA blog. Uh, it has taken over been, uh, the FCPA blog publishership and editorship was taken over by his son Harry Casson, and and Dick really um, to not just an entire generation, but I think really all compliance commentators owe lineage back to Dick Casson. He was the first one to create a blog in compliance. He was. Uh, has one of the largest, most well-respected blogs going, the FCPA blog. He, uh, but more than that, Jay, uh, and a very, on a very personal note, he has done nothing but encourage me. Uh, he allowed me to submit uh, guest posts to his blog early on in my career. He encouraged me to start my own blog. He uh, encouraged me to publish a book, my, my first book in compliance, in the compliance arena. And uh, he's done that for everybody. Uh, I mean, uh, Mike Volkoff is another person, uh, exactly that trajectory. And uh, Dick has has really been one of the great fosterers of compliance, talent, compliance, expertise, and compliance commentary. He has been one of the most generous, if not the most generous, people in our space. And although uh, certainly he will be sorely missed, uh, his son Harry is is uh, well versed to take over uh, for him. Harry's been working uh, at the blog uh, for several years, and so um, I just wanted to to really uh, give some of my personal reflections on the debt of gratitude that I owe Dick, and I wanted to really hear uh, what stories you might have or uh, how he may have impacted or affected your uh, compliance career. I, I think one of the first things uh, about Dick is that. He really ran a, a meritocracy. Anyone was invited to be on what he initially established as an FCPA bulletin board, a place where people could go to post things, to ask questions. And uh, it really was, uh, it's not an elitist place. Um, I believe in the uh, 
tribute that you did to him on uh, your blog yesterday. He talked about his goal was to write short stories that did not include legalese that were very much understandable by the public. And it was a place where people could go things. And that has been more than the case. Uh, He was generous to me when I was at uh, Merrill Brink. And uh, there were a couple times where uh, there were some new anti-corruption issues that came out from Brazil. And uh, Merrill Brink decided to translate them. And Dick was kind enough to uh, publish them on the website. So uh, I would recommend everyone, it's not in the show notes, but if you can go to Tom's blog from yesterday, the 31st, you'll just really get an idea of how generous Dick Casson was and how many commentators in the FCPA and anti-corruption space uh, owe their uh, initial uh, uh, appearance and, uh, you know, really got somebody like Dick Casson to get behind them. So uh, he will be missed, but uh, things will not miss a beat with Harry. And I'm sure we will hear from um, Dick from time to time. Maybe uh, when was the last time you did a podcast with Dick? You know, I've never done a podcast with Dick. Well, there, there's my uh, bright idea for the day. You should uh, <laughs> try to get one of those going because I'm sure he's got some great stories to tell. All right. Well, um, Jay, it was uh, quite a quite a quite a week uh, earlier this week on the compliance into the weeds episode that I did with Matt Kelly. We gave our Super Bowl predictions, so uh, I suppose it would be appropriate for us to give uh, Super Bowl predictions. And uh, I'm not quite sure what yours will be, so let me give you mine first, and hopefully it won't influence you too much. Um, I think the uh, Los Angeles Rams probably have the better team. But at age 39 and a half, Tom Brady had the greatest comeback in the history of uh, professional football playoffs, including Super Bowl and non-Super Bowl championships. At age 40 and a half, Tom Brady had the greatest single performance of any quarterback in an NFL championship game. And in uh, at age 41 and a half, I ain't betting against Tom Brady. So um, I'm – going to bet on the uh, or I'm picking the um, Patriots uh, because until somebody beats Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, in my mind, they're the champs. All right. Well, I've done some um, rigorous financial crunching here. And in the games uh, in the five Super Bowls that the Patriots won, uh, their average margin of victory was 3.8 points. Uh, I am predicting a final score of New England 34, Los Angeles 30. I'm predicting um, touchdowns in the air to Julian Edelman and Gronk, and touchdowns on the ground to Sony Michelle and James Devlin, the fullback. And I believe Stephen Goskowski will chip in with two field goals. And uh, one of them will come in the last two minutes or so. So I think it's going to be a tight game. Uh, I I think like in most of the Patriots Super Bowls, as they've unfolded, they've been very close in the first half. And then they decide to play um, arena football league rules in the fourth quarter and march up and down. So I'm saying 34-30, Brady gets one for the second thumb and still remains the GOAT. Do you have a score prediction? 
you know, I really, my analysis is not that sophisticated. Uh, I'm just going with my main man, fellow U of M grad, and another Tom, Tom Brady. All right. And do you have any uh, any uh, intel on new commercials that we should be looking for? Is there any buzz out there on that? So uh, I have not actually uh, researched that issue either. Um, so the, the buzz is low right here at uh, Shea Fox in uh, 55 degree weathered Houston, Texas. Do you remember the, the Darth Vader Volkswagen ad from a couple years ago? I do. Yeah, that was that was a fun one. So uh, maybe we get something from the world of Star Wars. Um, I hope so. So I think we've wrapped it. We've wrapped it all up here, and I just need to find my paper here. On behalf of Tom Fox, uh, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 140, for the week ending February 1st, which happens to be two days before Eminem's birthday. And although we gave our Super Bowl predictions, this episode this week was The Godfather Retires. Uh, congratulations to Dick Casson, and we look forward to uh, continuing to hear from you in the FCPA and ethics and compliance space. Everyone, enjoy the big game. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen and affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Once again, thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week where we review some of next week's top compliance and ethics stories. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.